Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. deception and feminine trickery. One minute, I could see the light, like the pulsing LED floor light shining directly into the face of the front row at the piano recital, unless you're sitting in glittery folds. The next minute, it was as if I was on the dark side of the sun, and the threads that I had pulled came away in my fingers like so much satin on worship. Turns out threads that are golden do break easily. I believe it was the greatest case of my career. But who am I to say? Modesty forbids it. It was certainly the most strange I have ever encountered. And it made me question if these shoes could ever take me back to who I was before. I am Detective Lieutenant Inspector Constable Hercules Poirot. My partner in crime solving is Detective Inspector Lieutenant Dr. Nadine Starling Heifenvandersluth, or Dildenshiv for short. Miss Dildenshiv had summoned me to Orlando, where the annual Men in Music Business Conference had been disrupted by a series of strange little murders. Twelve, to be exact. And two other additional murders, but those surfaced later and were somehow less visually stunning. Our host, we soon realized, was a mysterious graphic novelist who never revealed his name. He had left behind a series of haunting clues that became our mission to find. What does he know and how does he know it? And why exactly is he saying hi, by the way? We did our best to find out. We even tried to get him on the line, but we were told to hold. Most importantly though, with the stakes so high, we started to wonder, will we ourselves make it out alive? Or will we too soon be coming in the graveyard? Death, the high cost of living, lurks around every corner. And one day, we may just open our eyes and see her. Poirot, 
Poi Rapo, I'm so glad you made it. Aha! Dr. Starling, I presume. How was your trip to Orlando? I mean, <laughs> the tropics. Eh, the trip was okay. It turns out the ferry from Belgium doesn't drop off here in Orlando, so I had to take a flight, which rerouted me through Denver. And then it turns out the Uber driver didn't know where the Menu Music Business Conference down in Orlando was. So that was just endless circling on the map. But I'm here now. Needless to say, it's been a long travel day. Indeed, I'll say two things. The first one that comes to mind is I just want to acknowledge that I love how you're really leaning into your Belgian by way of Transylvanian heritage, it seems. And the second is, I'm not one to stand on formalities as far as titles are concerned, but actually, it's Detective Inspector Lieutenant Dr. Nadine Starling Hyphen Vandersleuth, but you can just call me Miss Dildenshia for short. Thank you. I appreciate the correction. And since we're on the subject, it's actually Detective Inspector Lieutenant Constable Hercules Poirot, and I do prefer you utilize my full name and title. Okay, great. That'll certainly pad this episode. Miss Dildenshiv, I am the greatest detective in the world. You called me for a reason. My secretary said you needed help solving what she inferred was the crime of the century. Well, it's only 2001, so let's not go nuts. But yes, I feel like I'm in over my head on this one. I'm feeling like a real rube just standing here with my good bag and my my cheap shoes. Callow, but sexy. Anyway, I need your expertise and the benefit of all your years of experience, given that you are many, many years older than I am. In this particular episode, and this particular episode alone, yes I am. What seems to be the trouble? What, pray tell, is your lament? The annual Men and Music Business Conference down in Orlando is actually held bi-annually, except for 98 and 99 when it was held in both years. Each year, the board president, a known ant fucker who's recently just given birth, picks a theme for the conference, which we sometimes refer to as a project. Oh, how wonderful. What did she name her baby? No name yet. She's waiting. Anyhow, this year the theme was songs written by man. Isn't that the theme of every men in music business conference? No. I see. The event had nary begun when I received a distressing phone call from the not janitorial staff. Oh my. That's right. Twelve bodies were found. Good God. Murder, you say? Murder, I says. A songwriter's dozen, that's what we call it. Great. Just what God needs. Not one victim, but twelve. Any similarities amongst the victims? Yes, each one is a man. I'm interested. Let me get my pen out here. Men. I'll have to confirm that. Mm-hmm. Each one was found in a different room. In various states of undress, I ho assume. Uh, they were all dressed. Different rooms, you say? <laughs> How big is this conference hall? Well, frankly, it's huge. The biggest conference hall there ever was. The smartest, biggest, best conference hall. You Floridians sure love to exaggerate. Poirot, each man was seemingly dispatched of by a different method. I found the first body in a stairwell. A stairwell? Very curious. It's a great thing you've called the greatest detective in the world. Right, right. I can see how this is going to go. All right. Before we begin, you must understand this, Miss Dildenshiv. I mean to arrive at the truth. The truth, however ugly in itself, is always curious and beautiful to seekers of it. I promise you I will uncover the truth. I hope so. Right now we have no leads and it all feels rather impossible. Sassible. That's not the word. You must mean say possible or say si belle. Regardless, Miss Dildenshiv, the impossible cannot have happened. Therefore, the impossible must be possible in spite of appearances. 
I don't remember ordering any word salad, but okay, thank you. I assure you, Detective Inspector Lieutenant... Constable. Constable. I assure you, Detective Inspector Lieutenant Constable Hercule Leaf Poirot, money is of no importance. We need your expertise. Miss Dildenshiv, I am intrigued by your offer. I accept. Wonderful. I have this piece of evidence that may be a clue for us. Aha! The Men in Music Business Conference down in Orlando, itinerary and schedule of events. Hmm, it is covered in blood, and it's got 12 numbers written on it. And these numbers correspond to certain rooms. It appears this itinerary belonged to the killer. Now, Ms. Dildenshiv, I must inform you. Some people consider my methods strange. Some people even consider my methods little. But I assure you, they work. Take me to the stairwell. Yes. So this is an American stairwell. How very large and echoey. Stairwell, and look, a payphone. Yes. Ah, there's our first victim. It appears our first victim was strangled while waiting for the phone to ring. And is that the diamond necklace on his shoulder? I've only seen this kind of diamond once before. Where? Well, Miss Dildenshiv, it's a very rare type of diamond that in my experience only educated librarian female types know about. But glasses. Aha! What's this? The victim is holding a note. Let me just pull it out of his cold dead hand. All your tomorrows start here. Something tells me there will be a lot of tomorrows spent on this investigation. And right beside his body is a clue. What is that? Oh, Detective Inspector Lieutenant Constable Hercule Poirot. This is what we Americans call a scream mask, or perhaps a a ghost face mask. You might have heard about that. They have a built-in voice changer. Here, let me show you. If you put them on, they alter your voice in real time. Fascinating. Should, Should we try it? I'm game if you are, but are we compromising the killer's DNA? Miss Dildenshiv, I must tell you now, I am the greatest detective in the world. I do not use DNA. I go purely on my own hunches. Oh, oh, delightfully unorthodox. What could possibly go wrong? It's never steered me wrong that I know of. Anyway, let's put them on. All right. I'll follow your lead. I don't like the slack jaw. It makes me feel weird. <laughs> put them on anyway. Getting on here also. It's not right. fit, but oh. Okay. Hello? He- hello? 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 Can you Hi. hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Oh my god, I sound American. <laughs> How do I sound? A little gay. A little gay. Oh, I do have it on the gay setting, but I kind of like it. Should I just leave it there? I like it too. Do I Do I sound gay? Yeah. Okay, well. Hello, Miss Dildenshiv. All right, here we are. Okay, let's keep going with our investigation, I guess. Why don't you read me a little from this uh, itinerary of events from the Men in Music Business Conference? A little bit about the project. All right. Tori's sixth solo album, Strange Little Girls, was released on September 17th, 2001 in the UK and September 18th, 2001 in the US. All the songs were written by men. Tori found a woman's voice in each song without changing the words. We'll go back to that. She started the project in the summer of 2000 while pregnant with her daughter, Natasha. Recording began on February 1st, 2001 in Cornwall, England and wrapped up mid-July. 
Okay, so there was two months in between mid-July to mid-September between when they wrapped up the album and when they released the album. That's a decent turnaround. This is the part where I refer to you as an expert and one of the men in music business conference masters um, or uh, as a man in the music <laughs> business who might attend something like a man in music business conference. What is the turnaround time to physically produce CDs or what was it at the time? Because two months, that seems wild. Two months feels right to me though. Okay. How much would you expect? I don't know. Four? Anywhere from four to four. six? I don't know. Six? Two months may be like a tighter turnaround time, but it doesn't feel like undoable. I remember Erica Badu when she came out with Mama's Gun. At the very last second, she changed the track listing, and it was too late to adjust the track listing on any of the printed materials. Mm-hmm. The printed materials from the original first pressing and the track listing on the original first pressing are different. So I know you're still able to change it at the very last second. Okay, but there is more time required for like the booklet insert. Probably, yeah. Interesting. So it's easier to press the CDs, I guess, than to print up the booklets? I would imagine, especially, I mean, maybe it's harder to press vinyl, but CDs just boop, boop, laser, boop, boop laser boop boop there's probably factories devoted can we point to bang as further evidence of that like she had to submit all the material for the booklet before she had all the lyrics and she's just like i don't know bang yeah bang i don't know what the words are yet what she should have done is put the periodic table of elements in the booklet oh sure with the like abbreviations you know Mm -hmm. that would have been cute more from the press release, Tori's sixth solo offering explores her noted abilities to reinterpret songs by other artists. This unique concept album is a collection of songs sung originally by men about women, which are then translated to Tori's viewpoint. Tori created a female character for each track, and she posed as these different women for the cover artwork. Therefore, there are quite a few cover variations featuring the various characters. In 2002, Tori received two Grammy nominations for this effort. This was her last studio album with the Atlantic label. Mm-hmm. Would we call four cover variations quite a few? Yeah. I mean, most albums have one cover. That's true. In comparison. <laughs> and there were six. There are six covers, technically. Are you sure? Six? I'm sure, yes. There's Raining Blood, Time, Happiness is a Warm Gun, Strange Little Girl, the non-American one where she's the sheriff, and the non-American one, which was thumbnails with all four Tory characters on the gray cover, the original four. Happiness, Strange Little Girl, Time, and Raining Blood. Oh, sure. Yeah, so there's technically six covers. Do you think that was available like later in the U.S.? after the initial print run, like they eliminated the variants and just put out the one with like the quadrant on the front? According to Discogs, the sixth cover was European. So I don't think the US had it, but I feel like it did come out in 2001, like in the original batch of pressings. Okay. I also want to talk about this idea of a concept album because she didn't take too kindly to that phrase, concept album. What do you think? She pushed back on that and was like, no, 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 this isn't a concept album. It's an album with a concept. Well, there's some, I'm sure some quotes in this document. I mean, itinerary and schedule of events where she talks about not wanting it to be called a concept album. And I feel like maybe her idea of concept album is different than what ours was. The way that a quote that she had revealed that her idea of a confessional singer-songwriter was different than how we meant it, you know? Mm. Because she was like, I confess to no one. Whereas we always took confessional, or I took confessional as being like someone who's being completely honest. Totally. With her audience. So I think she has similar thoughts about the phrase concept album because she grew up in the 70s when these concept albums were like maybe the David Bowie concept album. Tommy, you know, the Who's Tommy was a concept album. 
And it just was off the wall, you know? It's still their best album, but still. Do we think to her that Ben it really had, like, a narrative? Like, a chronological narrative and that the album is, like, really telling a story with a beginning, middle, and end? Is that how she's thinking about concept album or what? I think that maybe she had experienced people dismissing an album with the phrase concept album as if it wasn't a meaningful work. And I don't think she had a narrative, like a big overarching narrative in this album. I think it was just like, okay, each of these songs operated on their own. Right. I don't think there was like one informed the other, you know. But I feel like this is the definition of a concept album. There's a very strong concept. I'm covering songs written by men about women, and I'm going to be singing them from the woman's perspective. Concept. Exactly. Which I think we understood. I don't think that that word meant the same thing to her. But we'll get into it when when, when that quote comes up here. Yeah. Do you think that's similar to, like, don't call these music videos or, like, clips or short films? They're visualettes. <laughs> yeah. Ms. Dildenshiv, why don't you read this from Neil Gaiman blog entries? Apparently, this person named Neil Gaiman wrote several blog entries from April through August 2001, and we're going to read some here today. All right. Write that name down. Neil Gaiman could be a person of interest. From Monday, April 23rd, 2001, sat up with Marcel listening to the B-sides, all lovely, and in each case I could see why it wasn't an album track, although one of them might be a single in its own right. And then he played me four or five of the album tracks again. It got better, and I was blown away the first time. I don't really want to say anything specific and tangible about this album, because it's not my place to talk about it. It's Tori's, and she'll talk about it when the time's right. And you'll hear it then, too. But I will say that it feels in many ways like her first album as a grown-up, as a mother maybe, and that's both her most accessible album. There's one track which made me think of nothing so much as a great lost track from Little Earthquakes, and also especially in the sequence of the last four or five songs, her most painful. There are a couple of songs that are real singles. There's one song that will be a basement remix before you can say Stains. And there's one mammoth of a song that isn't yet finished. But even in the unfinished version, it's audacious and wild. She does things with her voice I've not heard before. And the arrangements and musicianship are astonishing. And as I've said before, it's not what you expect. Whatever you expect. What a tease. What a harlot. Okay, I remember this being obviously one of the very first things we got about this album. Mm -hmm. The date being April 1st, the fact that he's already referencing a sequence of the last four or five songs means that there was at least a working track list. And this is way out. Yeah, and this is way before July. So I don't know if what he's discussing here, if the songs he's hearing and in the order that he's hearing them are the same thing that we ended up with. Mm -hmm. But I still want to unpack this because this was profoundly meaningful to me at the time. I did have a misread on this, though, when I first read this. Because first he says, I will say that it feels in many ways like her first album as a grown-up. I interpreted that to mean not her first album, the first album she's made as a grown-up, as a mother, but as if Little Earthquakes had grown up. Her first album as a grown-up. And I was so dumb. But that's how I interpreted it. So you interpreted this as like being as strong as or the equivalent of Little Earthquakes, but sung from like an adult perspective? What did that? I thought he was saying her first album grew up. It feels in many ways like her first album as a grown-up. Like Little Earthquakes grew up. But I I read it now, obviously, and how he meant it then was that it's her first album written as a grown-up. Oh, I see. But (laughs) What do you think that would have sounded like to you, (laughs) Little Earthquakes as a grown-up? Like she has a job now? I don't know. I was trying to figure out why he wrote that. Anyway, let's discuss what he's talking about. Okay. I want to get your interpretation. When he says one song that will be a basement remix before you can say Stains. What does that mean? Was Stains like 
<laughs> I feel like I'm suddenly 300 years old. Was Stain like a producer or like a musician of some kind? Was there a Stain remix of a big song? What does that mean? Once I heard the album, I knew it was about I'm not in love. There was a lyric in the song that was Stain's. Oh. But at the time, I had no idea what he was talking about. It hides a nasty stain still lying there. Or like the song is so good, when you hear it, you're going to stain your basement floor. No, I think that it was obviously talking about I'm not in love. Because I knew when he says she does things with her voice I've not heard before. In my opinion, and it would be I would be very hard pressed to change that opinion 20 years later. It's that run that she does and I'm not in love. He that thing that she's never done before. Okay, I can see that. You don't think that that's kind of equivalent to Che Ye 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 Yanes and Crucify? That's kind of runny, isn't it? It definitely is, but there's something so fluid about the I'm not in love one. Mm. What do you think is the song he mentions being a lost track from the earthquake? Yeah, of course that stands out to me. I'm trying to imagine what that would be. Maybe Time or Rattlesnakes? I think one of those two for sure. I think those two, if they were originals, could live on that album. Yeah. I happen to find Rattlesnakes the most Tori-esque of all of these songs. Yeah. Like I could buy that as being an original out of all of them. And it's the one that's arguably the one that's stuck around the longest. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of her story in that one. There are a couple of songs that are real singles, Neil says. Do you think he was referring to the obvious single or what became the single? Maybe they already knew it was going to be Strange Little Girl. And they probably already had the title. But what else do you think stuck out to him as a potential single? Well, Rattlesnakes, of course, because it should have been a single. But there's something about me and the way I perceived Neil and the way I perceived this quote that makes me feel like he is a I'm not in love stan especially because the basement remix I feel is about that song and she does things with her voice I've not heard before although she also whisper sings Bonnie and Clyde we've never heard that before either Mm -hmm. like we'd never heard anything like that and that's haunting so maybe that's what he's talking about there That's definitely like her most theatrical performance on record, probably, right? Definitely. And there's one mammoth of a song that isn't yet finished, but even in the unfinished version is audacious and wild. Obviously, happiness is a warm gun, right? Sure, yes. Mammoth. From Cosmo Girl Magazine, October 2001, Tori says, I wanted to go to some of the great poets of my generation, like Neil Young and Lou Reed, and crawl behind their eyes to see what they were thinking. I really felt like, as a songwriter, the only way to explore the power of the word was to use men's words. It fascinates me, the things men say and how women hear them. There are a lot of things being said by young guys that intrigued me. There's stuff out there right now that really isn't happy with women. I believe in freedom of speech, but if you're saying stuff just to shock people and if you don't believe in it, then that is what I have an issue with. These guys were saying it's only words and they talk about cutting women up and that kind of thing. We all could have a dark sense of humor, but there's just a place where I said, no, no, no. If you're going to say stuff, have the balls to stand by it. You can't sell a million records, then go, only kidding. Strange Little Girls is about the power of the word. Words are like guns. I've never heard so many women being okay with being demeaned. I don't know if your reader's generation remembers when Gloria Steinem got up and started talking. I was a little girl in the late 60s, but I remember freedoms for women that were hard won that are taken for granted now. You know, I don't want to get too far into it before we continue our investigation into individual episodes or perhaps interrogations. But do you think she's referring to anything but 97 Bonnie and Clyde here? Maybe the general concept. I mean, maybe Bonnie and Clyde sparked the general concept or hearing that song. But it feels like that's what she's talking about. Ooh, that's interesting. What came first, the concept or the songs? Or maybe one song? I kind of think that's very possible, the way that you suggested that, that maybe... 
she really keyed in to 97 Bonnie and Clyde and she was like, someone should sing this from her perspective. <gasps> it should be me. <gasps> I should do it 12 times. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I like that narrative and I can accept that narrative. In my personal belief, I feel like the covers album idea came first. You know, and as we go through the season, we'll uncover quotes from her mother regarding the contract. You know, her trying to get out of her Atlantic contract. Yes. I will save further thoughts until we gather more evidence and we get to those other quotes that you mentioned. Then maybe we'll have more to say about the concept and how it evolved. Oh, yes. Speaking of evidence, Miss Dildenshiv, there's this etching right here on the side of the phone booth. Why don't you read this? It says it's from Culture Spiegel, September 2001. Someone really put a lot of effort into carving this on the side of the phone booth. Okay, from Culture Spiegel. I have thought a lot about these women. Where do they come from? What are they like? What do they think? In the end, the image of these women was very concrete. I could even imagine how they look. And for the booklet, I had myself photographed in those different roles. Do you sing the original lyrics, they ask? I just left out a few words here and there. The originals do quite stand for themselves. Words can always hurt and they can heal. Their power is underestimated. I always hear, well, they're just words. This all is probably not meant that way. But words are weapons, and men know that very well, but they rarely take the responsibility. Someone did put a lot of effort into uh, carving that on the phone booth, Miss Dildenshiv. Mm-hmm. But thank God, because it's a clue in our investigation. Oh, let me take off this mask. Oh, I can breathe again. Miss Dildenshiv, obviously we are seeking a perpetrator who I said before is a librarian type. This etching proves it to me that this person is obsessed with words. Therefore, my detective instinct tells me they wear glasses and they occasionally hold the frame of the glasses at the corner, coyly. They probably like to hide in the shadows by wearing gray, but they still like a little style. So a little flash of purple, maybe? Violet? Me too. Miss Dildenshiv, take me to the next victim. All right. What a beautiful dining hall. Yes, this is the conference hall dining room. You can see here, this poor sap seems to have passed away from eating birthday cake. Perhaps it was poisoned? That does appear to be the case. Although, I can't say that I wouldn't have eaten it myself. I mean, it does look like delicious cake. Understandable. <laughs> Are all of your dining halls this large? I very much love it here in America. <laughs> what a country. <laughs> Anyway, there's a piece of paper in his hand. Someone wrote something on a piece of paper. Miss Dildenshiv, I think it's your turn to read. I read, the, I read the last paper. Mysterious. The message reads, she wonders what her daughter will do. I wonder if that means anything. All right, I'll just put it with the first one. Yes, it's got to mean something. Let's read from this menu beside this dead man with a cake in his mouth. Cake man. Cake man. All right. From Ur Magazine, September 8th, 2001. When Tosh just was born, I listened to a lot of alternative radio. It struck me how many male artists seem to really hate women. The word bitch was used very often. I had Tosh in my arms and thought, she's growing up in a world where men think so negatively about women. I have to do something. I have to build a bridge between the sexes. The only way to do that was to get inside the heads of these men, in this case through their songs. Still, you didn't only choose songs where men sing negatively about women. No, I wouldn't want to do that. 
that was only one reason to make this album. The segregation of men and women has always fascinated me, and on its own, it absolutely needn't be negative. But I have regularly heard in some men's songs that women aren't always treated equally, or they have no voice at all. That's why I wanted to make this exchange project between both sexes, by the integration of men's words with a woman's perception. I think that answers the question that I had to pull my mask down. Sorry. <laughs> I think that answers the question that you asked earlier when you asked if she's singing, if she's speaking about anything other than Bonnie and Clyde. If she had made this album and it were 12 tracks of men singing negatively about women and her kind of jumping in there, I think it would be overwhelming. I think that that masculine energy would still kind of carry through. Mm -hmm. Negative energy would still carry through. I don't think she could transcend that if all 12 tracks were about cutting up women and like putting them in the trunk or whatever, you know? So I think that she made a wise decision to embody the women that were kind of missing, their narrative was missing or their opinion their pov was missing right and i don't think tori as an artist would have been interested in exploring just that side of things anyway but if she had it certainly wouldn't have dissuaded anyone from continuing to craft the narrative that tori like hates men or is anti-men which is obviously so not true which is clearly not, <laughs> not true yeah in fact it's quite the opposite it's just funny that people take it that way people just don't listen you americans don't listen yeah well it's hard when you're gorging yourself on cake Further down here on this menu, it says, From Blender Magazine, August, September 2001. I was nursing Tosh in Florida, and I was hearing a lot of male artists on alternative radio, and some of them really hated women. I thought about my daughter and what these guys were thinking about women. I wanted to build some kind of bridge, and I figured that that was the only way to get into the heads of these men. I support her. But, you know, for every M&M, there was a Lou Bega. What is that, Mambo number five? Mambo number five. A little bit of Monica in my life. A little bit of Erica by my side. A little bit of Rita's all I need. A little bit of Tina's what I see. A little bit of Sandra in the sun. A little bit of Mary all night long. A little bit of Jessica, here I am. A little bit of you makes me your man. That's my dad's favorite song, so I'm sure that's why he brought that up. Is that still his favorite song? Probably. But that's still another, even though it's very female positive and very women positive, it's still very objectifying to women. Right. And I would have loved for her to have taken on Rebecca in my life or whatever, you know, like the, one of the women that he's singing about as loving when he has a string of women that he's also loving, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I want to hear her perspective. What do you think if she'd stepped into like Monica for the Strange Little Girls artwork, what would Monica look like? Short skirt, slim waist, high heels. I like a girl with a short skirt and a long jacket. She should have stepped into that cake song. Yeah, oh my God, cake. There's so many things she could have done. More cake. Speaking of cake, I've come to my conclusion. Hold on. Oh. I've come to my conclusion, Miss Gildenshiv, that the perpetrator in this case appears very different than the perpetrator in the other room. Perhaps it might be two different perpetrators. I'm not, I haven't, I don't have my consensus yet, but I do know that this perpetrator must be blonde because the note was written with blonde handwriting <laughs> and the cake looks like it would offset a blonde hairdo better than a brown one. Right. If you can understand what I'm saying, but it's okay that you can't because I am the greatest detective in the world. And just just take me to the next room, Miss Dildenshiv. All right, these bodies are really piling up. Body number three, here we go.
right, Inspector, please follow me into the uh, conference center's costume shop. Every conference center's got to have a costume shop, right? All the men in the music business like to wear costumes. Look at all these fabrics. This is satin, yes? Yeah, we got satin, we got suede, we got leather. Anything you want, we got it. I love it. I worship satin. And as with the other two bodies, there seems to have been another clue left here by the killer. <gasps> oh, I didn't even notice this body. Oh, <laughs> there he is. Oh, <laughs> there's a piece of paper in his hand. Yes, here it says, whenever it rains, you think of her. Mm. Mystery upon mystery. So this happened when it was raining. And here in Florida, it rains a lot. Inside? Indoors? In the conference hall? I think you're having another problem with your mask. It seems to have slipped down. It just gets so hot. The traveling in between rooms gets hot. Hold on. Rough. Oh, okay. I'm back. From Neil Gaiman blog entries, July 16th, 2001. He had officially teased the people... And the people demanded answers. This was the early days of the internet when we could, and when a lot of people did respond to things. Remember? Yes. People would reply to like news stories online. People don't do that anymore. People would respond to everything, and people were demanding he give more answers. He did not know the shitstorm he created. Do you think he's really kind of stepping into his new role as Uncle Neil, Tasha's godfather? Now he's like, I'm playful. I'm gonna tease. Yeah, I'm gonna tease. I think they were like collaborating together. This was also a project he took ownership of. You know, because he wrote all of the words mm-hmm. for the girls. So um, this is from one of his blog entries, July 16, 2001. Did a strange but kind of fun thing with Tori where we sat and were filmed talking in a hotel with galaxies in the lifts and see-through glass bathrooms. Read the short stories for Strange Little Girls and then we talked about each story and each song and what it meant. I think they'll edit it into something and put it out on the web in some form. Did we ever see that? Did we ever see them talking? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so either. That's a shame. I do not recall this. So I went and looked on the dent. I even went to the Wayback Machine. So the Wayback Machine, I went to Torymus.com in 2001 prior to the release of Strange Little Girls. The last hit on the Wayback Machine, there's actually a list in the Tory News section of Torymus.com from July 25th, 2001 that says look for an exclusive interview with Tory and Neil to be aired on Torymus.com. And so then I went... I followed that trail, couldn't find any proof that this interview had happened. I even went to the Dent. The Dent mentions nothing. There are no press articles in July of 2001, according to the Dent. And I believe the Dent before I believe Torymus.com any day. See, this is why you don't do this. You dangle this kind of information and then it never sees the light of day. Right, right. I want that footage, Neil. Yes, I want that footage. We want the American Doll Posse DVD. We want the version of American Doll Posse that had harpsichords on it. Okay, now you're being silly. I'm now sorry. You're, now you're taking away what we could potentially get, like this 20-year-old video that never saw the light of day, and you're adding the Doll Posse DVD, and we're never getting that. And they were just like sitting around the bathroom talking about the album, and they made it look like a bathroom in space, is what I'm getting from this? No, I think that they were in a posh hotel, and so they had see-through glass bathrooms. Like the Ace Hotel has see-through bathrooms. Uh-huh. So they were just sitting there chit-chatting. All right. Anyway, I'd like to see the footage. I never even knew this happened. The time that they did that press thing together i think it was 2017 right where they like did a ticketed event and they were doing a talk Mm -hmm. i thought that was the first time i'd ever seen them speak publicly together right and i would have bet money that that was the first time that that had happened but clearly it happened on july 16 2001 or around that time period because he wrote the blog about it yeah but it stayed in the bathroom i guess (laughs) stayed in the bathroom vaults were we still referring to it as the web in 2001 and when did we stop doing that when's the last time you heard the The web? web 
The web. Like, I still hear the web. You the do? Web? People say that? Yeah, the internet, the worldwide web. Yeah, I still hear it. Not very often, but I still hear it. I thought we were, like, firmly internet now. Nah, you're right, probably. Look, there's a clue carefully sewn into this man's tag on the back of his shirt, Miss Dildin Chiv. Hmm. Who could this killer be? A sailor? A tailor? Who knows? Oh, I have to get my magnifying glass. Hold on. It says on this label, I would say it's a larger label than most, but not entirely huge. It says, from Elle Magazine, September 2001. Can you read the rest? I am not these people, (laughs) but I can find each one inside. I'm not the mother of these songs, the many who wrote them are, but I became a sort of foster mom. Motherhood, as it were, played a key role in the conception of girls, Amos's first effort since giving birth last year to a daughter, a time when she began to dwell on male discourse and its ramifications for women. I don't know what my daughter's choices will be in 20 years. Any of our daughters could be these strange little girls. I didn't know that these words from men would take hold of me. I thought I'd find out something about them. Instead, I found something out about myself. Interesting. This is a lot of writing for a little label. I don't think this album could have happened if she hadn't given birth. Not even given birth, but given birth to a daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though there's a case to be made that this was her getting out of her contract with Atlantic, there's a lot at stake here. Because if this album isn't good... And if her effort isn't real, they could shelve the album, they could bury the album, and it really affects her market value when she's trying to get another record deal Mm -hmm. the next time. And this was not in the time of like self-publishing records, you know, now she releases her records on her own, Mm -hmm. but this wasn't the time. Yeah. So I feel like she really was wrapping herself around this effort. And I think it became really authentic to her. I feel like in hindsight, the end of her contract with Atlantic, it looks like that really sort of influenced the work that she was putting out. And maybe it did. And it also provides like some nice symmetry, like the end of this era, her time with Atlantic is this covers album, and she's kind of leaving all this other work behind and moving in a different direction. But I feel like that would have happened anyway. And we get sort of these markers of like Atlantic era over moving into the epic era. But again, I feel like that would have been happening anyway, because of all these changes that were going on in her personal life. And this just provided kind of a handy way to mark that very clearly. But I feel like this would have been going on regardless. What do you think? Yeah, I think without her contract ending, this album doesn't exist. I think that if she had stayed with Atlantic, we would have a big gap from To Venus and Back through Scarlet's Walk. Mm, I think mm-hmm. she would have still written those songs because I agree with you. I think that all of these changes in her personal life were happening. I think the only caveat is that she had had such a deteriorated relationship with Atlantic by this point that she didn't want to give them any more songs. So she didn't want to put out these new era songs because I do think she felt she was changing as well. And obviously the music was changing. So I don't think she wanted to give them that. I think that without Atlantic ending the contract, this record doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But if she had stayed with Atlantic, we'd still have Scarlet's Walk. The Be- I think it still would have been the exact same thing. Interesting. Wild. You know, I'm looking at these three bodies we have here. Do you think it's time to start? (laughs) One thing that we've seen in each of these crime scenes with each of these bodies is that the killer has managed to inscribe very lengthy blocks of words onto very small surfaces or into very small spaces. Oh, yes. The menu, the label. The side of the phone booth. Oh, yeah. That was a good one. With that being said, I think it's now would be an appropriate time to start 
putting together a suspect list based on the clues we're gathering, and I would like to offer that the killer could be none other than Alanis Morissette. <laughs> oh, don't do her like that. Just pointing out, maybe Fiona Apple is a backup. Both very handily can jam a lot of words into a space that's arguably too small for it, or a musical <laughs> phrase that's arguably too small wow. for it. Wow. When the pawn hits the conflict, he thinks like a king. I can do that whole album title if you'd like. You keep threatening slash promising that, and I've never seen it. Well, <laughs> because it takes it'll take five minutes of our airtime. We got it. Okay, I guess. I mean, I could speed it up. I mean, maybe the time has passed. We've left the 90s. <laughs> when the pawn hits the conflict, he thinks like a king. What he knows throws the blows when he goes to the fight. So win the whole thing for he answers the ring. There's no body to batter when your mind is your might. So when you go solo, you hold your own hand. Remember that death is the greatest of heights. If you know where you stand, and you know where to land. And if, you, and if you fall, it won't matter because you'll know that you're right. Oh my God, I almost did it perfectly. Oh my God, I think that gets a you go, girl. <laughs> you go, girl. Thank you. And I guess maybe you could be the killer. Oh my God. <laughs> Miss Dildenshiv, how dare you? I have committed my life to crime solving. And clearly, the killer in this particular incident has short black hair. And I know that because there is a hair here on the drafting table. And I, as you can clearly see, am bald. So take me to the next victim, please. Take me to the next victim. All right. What a beautiful plot. What room did you say this was again that we were headed to? The what? Spa. It's quiet in here. <laughs> it's very quiet. Yeah. Maybe we should just sit here and enjoy that for a while. We've been we've been taking on a lot. Good idea. Let us close our eyes and meditate. For it is when you close your eyes that the mind can finally see. Thank you, Miss Dildenshiv, for that moment of clarity. Ah, I see the I see our next victim. And true to form, he's holding a piece of paper. This is one busy killer. One singular busy killer. I'll say. What does it say? Can you show that to me? Oh, 35 years, a showgirl. Okay, well, first of all, that's a respectable career for anyone, but particularly a showgirl. That's really demanding. I agree. Any career for 35 years, you know, you get a pension, I assume? Yeah. Fully vested in your 401k? Probably way before that, but still. I don't know what that is. I am from Brussels, (laughs) I think. Anyhow, do you think this could be one killer, or are there four bodies, four killers? Well, it could be a troop of showgirls, for all we know. And what does this message mean? Does that mean the killer is a showgirl? Does that mean this guy had a career as a showgirl at some point? I don't. From Polish radio... <clears throat> the mask the, from Polish radio, August 2001. Tori says, this is not just about songs that meant something to me when they came out. This is not what it is. This is about how men say things and how a woman hears them. This is about the myths of our time now. What are they? Whether a song is 30 years old or two years old, it had to resonate with that. This is about words are like guns. Words can wound and words can heal. Words are like violets, some might say. This is about building a bridge where a woman could go crawl behind the corridors of men's eyes and hang in their heads. Likewise, a man can crawl back over that bridge and access a woman's perception, which is a very intimate thing, her perception. So there is an integration happening there instead of a segregation, which I saw happening in America at this time as I was nursing my baby. 
Well, I think we have uncovered the fierce calm of this era. Words are like guns. Words can wound and words can heal. I think we've heard that already three times. So that's going to be with us for oh, good. the next 14 episodes, a couple years. Who can say? Yeah, words are like guns. Words can wound and words can heal. We also have Nursing My Baby. Did she get that from Cher? Because that's an actual lyric from If I Could Turn Back Time. Words are like weapons. They wound sometimes. Sorry, but it's true. I love Cher. Don't get me started. Who doesn't? Well, I guess take me to the next body. <laughs> All right. This conference hall has an art gallery? Yeah, why not? Costume shop, art gallery, it's full service. Beautiful. So this guy here is, uh, it seems like he got maybe knocked over the head with this painting that was ripped off the wall. And it seems like the painting was covering a nasty stain. Mm. I don't know if that was here before or if that's part of the murder. All very unclear. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. I'll, I'll do the investigating here. You just uh, <laughs> read that piece of paper. All right. Another scrap of paper left in the palm of this body here. This one reads, she forgets him utterly and forever. Well. Who's she trying to convince? Us? Herself? I don't know. It's almost as if when you put a painting on the wall, you forget the stain behind it. Yeah. Utterly and forever. It looks like there's another clue here written in invisible ink on this painting next to this other painting that fell. How did, how did you spot that? Well done. Because I've got, I have a, I have a stigmatism, which helps me to see invisible ink. Oh, okay. It's like a magic eye picture. I, I would ask you to read it, but I guess I'm guessing you can't read it. So I'll do it myself. Hold on. Let me pull down my mask. I guess this is from another blog from Neil Gaiman, July 22nd, 2001. And since I know that he loves this song deep down, this blog says, oh, one thing, several people at the signing asked about the stories I wrote for Tori Strange Little Girls album. To clarify, they won't be on the CD. I think the plan is to take a sentence from each one and put it by the relevant photo for the CD, then to run the whole story in a tour booklet. One person asked me if the new album was really any good. As if I'd, <laughs> What a troll. <laughs> one person asked me if the new album was really any good, as if I'd probably just been trying to get people's hopes up to help sell a dog of an album which rather puzzled me oh uh, when people interact with tory fans for the first time <laughs> they're like what's happening so for the record yes i really like the album i think it's the best thing tory's done in a while and it's in my opinion her most personal album for years i would be astonished if there wasn't at least one track on there that every died in the wool tory fan loved immediately and equally as surprised if there wasn't at least one track that they disliked equally as strongly. It's that sort of record. I mean, that's a safe bet. What do you mean? <laughs> it's a safe bet that people will love some songs, not like other songs. I think Neil is running out of steam here. It's like, you might like it, you might not like it. I don't know. I think it's good. No, I don't hear it that way because I think that Tori Amos fans have been so diehard, died in the wool, I guess as he says, for every album, we are known, or at least at the time, we're known for being ferocious absorbers, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think he's saying that this album may be polarizing in a way that none of her other work has been. But what is interesting to me is that he says, where I nitpick, I think it's the best thing Tori's done in a while. Since in a while, does that mean at least one album or two? 
So is this the best thing she's done since Pele or the best thing she's done since Choir Girl so that he doesn't like Venus or he didn't like Choir Girl? Like, what is it that he's talking right. about? Or this could just be the best thing she's done since 1999. <laughs> well, that's what I hope he means. Yeah. Maybe he just didn't like Carnival. That's Maybe what he just I was going like to say, too. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> and then also her most personal album for years. That's so interesting because she didn't write a single word on it. I know. What do you make of that? I don't know. I don't think that Neil, friend of Tori, and also muse for songs, is dissecting the work in the way that we are. Mm. Would you agree? Yeah, for sure. And the other thing that comes to mind is like he's probably never been this close to the process before. And because he's writing the stories, they're obviously talking about these characters and why the songs were chosen and how she's kind of accessing them. So maybe to him, he's like, whoa, this is all seeming very personal (laughs) and important to her. But that's kind of like not necessarily different than how it's always been. He's just never like had a window into that process before. Right. And then because I don't necessarily think he's dissected to Venus and back the way we have, he doesn't necessarily see that probably as a personal record because of the electronic element. You know, it probably feels a little less personal. Yeah. Than like Choir Girl, which is obviously personal. So I get it. I get why he's saying that. And the case like, can be made for it. Neil probably just hears what sounds like sauceable, accepts it, and moves on and doesn't keep talking about it yeah. for like years. <laughs> C'est possible. C'est possible. <laughs> oh my God. Someone sprayed graffiti on this art piece. Ugh. Would it be the killer who's leaving all these clues behind? Oh my God. What does it say? This suspect list is becoming very weird now. I'm thinking like the Joker could potentially be involved in this. He's defacing art. I don't know. Banksy? All right, Banksy. It's Banksy. (laughs) He wrote from Ice Magazine, September 2001. One of the real premises for the record was how men say things and what women hear. To do that, I had to first be clear on what a man's hearing and what a man says. Also, they, the songs, had to reflect our time. There had to be some kind of resonance. Do you think Atlantic is like, you know what, Tori, we just wanted some songs. Well, yeah, they don't get art. (laughs) Well, take me to the next body. All right. You're taking this all in stride, really. I mean, I guess once you've seen three bodies, what's one more? I've seen so much in my life, Miss Dildenshiv. Mm. I've seen so very much. Here we are in the amusement park area of uh-huh. the Ben and Music Business Conference Hall. Yes, well, this is Orlando, after all. This um, roller coaster has come to a halt, and there is a body right here in the first seat of the first car. His face is frozen in a rictus of, I don't know, could be terror, could be joy, mouth wide open. He was on a roller coaster, so it could be a mixture of both. We don't know. I don't see joy. What does this piece of paper say? It says here, she rides roller coasters but never screams. Well, she sounds like a joy. First of all, I have to say how he was able to keep hold of that on the entire roller coaster ride till it came to a halt. We'll never know, but good for the victim. It's a small victory even in death. Who is this she? I've got to pull the mask down. Who is this her that rides roller coasters but never screams? I mean, obviously she's our suspect. All right, this is getting very seven. You think the killer is trying to point us towards him? He's not trying to confuse us or send us off on a wild goose chase? Who knows? I actually don't know what's happening at all. (laughs) So, (laughs) like at all. Um, But look, I do know that I see something scratched into the seatbelt from Samsonic Magazine, September, October 2001. It says, I really wanted my versions of those male songs to become the word made flesh, like in the Bible. 
by interpreting their lyrics from a feminine point of view, I took possession of their seed. You take a man's word, you take his seed. I went in their heads, and if I turn their words against them, it's checkmate. Did you actually tell those men about your plans? Lou Reed, Eminem, Bob Geldof, Joe Jackson, Neil Young? No! I approached their companies, so they know about it. But I didn't approach them personally. That would have looked too much like I had to ask permission. And I don't want to give this project less power through their opinions. Imagine Lou Reed would say, What a crazy idea! Who does she think she is? Maybe it's a matter of self-protection as well. Most men don't like it if you show them a mirror. This is the way I see it. I started a relationship with the daughters of those male composers, and what matters are your feelings towards the one with whom you have a relationship. What mom and dad think about, it doesn't matter. She's feisty here. She is. This is another ma'am. This is a Wendy's moment if there ever was one. <laughs> you take a man's word, you take his seed. I went into their heads. Checkmate, motherfucker. <laughs> okay. No, I like it. And a lot of people don't realize she didn't have to actually... There was one in particular, though, that she did have to ask specifically, wasn't there? Wasn't that Yoko Ono? Probably. Yeah. Doesn't she talk about having to have dinner with Yoko Ono and that she wasn't very nice? Ooh, I don't remember that. I remember her saying she's not very nice on uh, Storytellers. Oh. Um, strange things happen to you on tour. Like strange Englishmen start sitting at the end of your bed, apparitions of dead guys. <laughs> And they start singing songs to you. Um, and this guy was definitely dead. And he was definitely singing to me. Um, so I'm confused about the copyright laws. I'm not sure if I need to call his ex-wife and give him part of the song or not. But why should I do that? She's rich. She's not nice. So anyway. So what do you think about this quote? I think that's a good strategy to really try to separate art from artist and to not have any kind of conversation that could sway the way she was thinking about the song as it's kind of put out there, the way she was experiencing it. Because I think that could have colored things if she was like, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm doing. I really want your blessing or just to hear what you think. But to kind of avoid that altogether and just sit with the song and sort of develop these characters and all of that on her own. That makes sense to me. I feel like there is so much that has changed. We are sitting in 2024 and there's a not a day that goes by, I think, I feel, that my life isn't immersed in the gay experience when I leave my house. First of all, I live in a progressive city, essentially. I mean, for all intents and purposes. And the only places I really frequent are gay bars, you know. So I feel like I'm around a lot of accepting people and a lot of queer culture. But back in 2001, I lived in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and I didn't know very many gay people. And so this all really resonated with me in a way that like I understood. I understood that men don't like it when you show them a mirror and that there is a, a war, not even just between men and women, but like a war between men against this idea of the feminine, because it's not just about the enemy as a woman. The idea is the enemy is, a, is the feminine trait or the feminine quality, because if it was inside them, that was just as bad as battling a woman. Or if it was a gay boy, that was just as bad as battling a woman. You know, it was just this idea of being perceived as feminine. Mm -hmm. So this all resonated with me in a way in 2001 that I don't feel is the same anymore for myself because of my lived experience, but being aware, like being human in this country right now, seeing not only Roe versus Wade, but all the anti-trans bills, all of the anti-gay, they just banned pride flags in Tennessee. Something's going on with pride flags. So this war continues in many ways for my, li my actual lived life. I can feel safer than I used to feel in 2001, but 
in the grander context, it's so much worse. And it's just a little bleak, you know? I mean, what the fuck do I know anyway? I appreciate the way you articulated that and kind of what your experience was. And I think that's in a lot of pockets of the country still a lot of people's experience. But is it safe to say that homophobia is really rooted in misogyny and that in a patriarchal society or for most men, there's nothing worse that you could be than feminine? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're fighting the same fight. Mm-hmm. Which is why, and I hate that I'm bringing this up, but you know, I've encountered people gay, and per- usually, I don't think I've ever encountered anyone who's not actually a gay cis white male who has drawn a line between gay rights or LGBTQ rights and T rights. You know, where people I've never met anybody who separated the lesbian, gay, pansexual, bisexual experience from the trans experience that hasn't been a cis white man. Mm. So I feel like there's so much privilege in just being a cis male that they lose sight that it's truly the same war. It's a war. It's a misogynistic war against Mm. the feminine. Yeah. That's all. Just because you're gay doesn't mean you're not benefiting from the privilege of being male and the privilege of being white. That if you can actually draw a line, that if you say like, oh, LGB rights, no T, which we've encountered people who (laughs) I've encountered people like that. So it's uh, a fucking mess. Now the time to tell the story of the person who didn't want to be on the show because we are trans supporters. Are we telling that? No, now's not the time. Why don't you read this? Where are we? Oh, this is an amusement park. Oh my God, there's writing here. Someone has written on the ground. Someone has formed the gravel rocks on the ground into writing. Why don't you read this? It's a clue. It says from Rolling Stone, April 13th, 2001. Tori Amos says the idea for her latest project came about from the long bonding session she had nursing her daughter Natasha. The thing about nursing is you do have enforced thinking time for hours and hours and hours a day. That's when I formulated the whole thing. In those hours, I started to decide what I was going to do, and it did kind of surprise me what my choice was. Amos's album is also shaped by a recent Martin Amos piece in the London newspaper The Guardian. The article about pornography in America made Amos put an ear to the ground and hear what people are saying. The one question that I had to really pull back was, what is it in us, in women, that makes us believe that it's okay to be defecated on? I'm just kind of blown away. She says about the current climate in America. Thoughts? Well, I need to know more about this Martin Amos piece about pornography, and for some reason that took us off on a tangent about defecation. Because I think, well, because she mentions that this piece shaped Strange Little Girls, or at least helped to shape Strange Little Girls, I think it's important that we read from it. And Shay, our lovely researcher and archivist, found the article, which is more than 22 years old. So I'm going to read a little bit from the article. It's called A Rough Trade. Martin Amos reports from the high-risk, increasingly violent world of the pornography industry. It's a very long article, but it's incredibly interesting. There's a lot to pull from it, and I can really see what Tori's talking about. I'm just going to read you a little excerpt content warning, graphic sexual stuff about to come up. Skip ahead maybe like a minute if you don't want to hear it. Martin is sitting down with a producer named John Stagliano and he says, answer me something. How do you account for the emphasis, not just in your work, but in the industry in general? How do you account for the truly incredible emphasis on anal sex? After a minimal shrug and a minimal pause, Stagliano said, pussies are bullshit. Now John was being obedient to the dictionary definition of bullshit, which is nonsense intended to deceive. With vaginal, Stagliano elaborated, well, here you have some chick chirping away and the genuinely discerning viewer has got to be thinking, is this for real or is it just bullshit? With anal, on the other hand, the actress is obliged to produce a different order of response, more guttural, more animal. As Stagliano quaintly puts it, her personality comes out. 
He goes on, you want guys who can fuck really good and make the girls look more virile. Virile, of course, means manly. But once again, Stagliano is using the king's English. You want the girls to show you their testosterone. And it goes on. There's a lot in here. So we're going to link to it in our show notes. Songsoftramus.com. Newly redesigned. Thank you. We're going to link to it in our show notes. Check that out. Read it. And then we'll all talk about it somehow. I don't know how. We'll talk about it. Maybe in the wrap up, we'll talk about it in like a triple X episode. Thank you to Chase Dimack for finding that martin amos has been popping up a lot in my life recently really yeah i saw a movie called the zone of interest in which he wrote the source novel for the zone of interest Mm. so wild a masterpiece everybody needs to see it but whatever anyway take me to the next body There's a lot going on here in Florida, I have to say. This is one conference, and this is our seventh victim. Unbelievable. And here he is. Are there going to be any men left to participate in the Men in the Music Business Conference down here in Orlando? I actually haven't seen a single live man walking around. They fled. It's just been us and uh, the janitorial staff. <laughs> oh, anyway. What is this room? There's a lot of clocks in here. It's a clock shop where the repairs are done for all the clocks in the uh, conference center here. How many clocks could be in disrepair in one conference hall? This is a strange room, but he looks so peaceful. I have to say, it was as if his time had come. (laughs) Good one. He's just like staring straight up at the ceiling. He has a piece of paper in his hand. Just like the others. Let's read that little scrap of paper. Just like the others, yes. This one says, one day you will open your eyes and see her. Hmm. Is that why his eyes are open? Is that a promise? Is it a threat? I think it is a threat. (laughs) I take everything as a threat, though. I am a detective. Way to stay frosty. (laughs) Way to stay what? Way to stay frosty. You stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. You know what I'm saying? I... Is that an American idiom? (laughs) I'm telling you, Miss Dildenshiv, you know what? If you take a step back... Actually, take a step back. Come here with me, please. Okay. Stepping back. A little further. A little further. Okay, all right. Now, now, you see all the clocks on the wall together. Mm-hmm. They form a paragraph of words. The hands have been placed just so to form words. Good God, you've done it again. Yes, you've got to stay observant. You have to see the world around you. I always forget that. I'm starting to question if I'm in the right line of work. Please read from these clocks as the hands have been placed into letters that form words that has formed one larger paragraph. Okay. Now please read that paragraph. All right, I will. It says here that this is from Next Magazine, September 7th, 2001. Each of these songs became a myth of our time. Whatever you think of these songs or these writers, and even with my own work, certain songs transcend us. Yeah, I have pictures in my head when I hear my songs Winter and Professional Widow, but they are not going to be the same pictures that you see. My personal experience with the song is just my personal experience, and a song goes beyond that. So, in this land of myth that you walk into, in each song. It was a different male seed vision that I was taking to put into my garden. What I didn't realize when I took their seed is that I would also have to take a little egg back with me. That's the trade-off that happens in mythology. That's how the land of myth works. It's a sort of strange and mysterious world. These women characters were hitting me from all sides. They would just come in and take over. 
I want to know what picture she sees when she sings Winter and mm-hmm. what picture she sings when she sings Professional Widow. A couple of years ago on our Instagram, I posted like, what's the name of this woman? And it was the strange little girl woman. You know, like people were naming the girls. Mm-hmm. And people were being... You know, some people were, some people, not Robin Hewitt, but some people were taking it seriously. (laughs) And it was just interesting to me what people saw their names as, you know? Do you remember any off the top of your head? I'll read them as we go through the season. Okay. Yeah, that'll be fun. Excellent. Because these girls, obviously, as she's envisioning them, she probably named them. They probably have names to her. I need to know what people came up with for uh, Enjoy the Silence. Margaret. (laughs) Jennifer. (laughs) Jennifer? Oh. Diamond. Wasn't that, I mean, those, that's a lot of clocks to form that paragraph. I mean, I'm generally against murder, but I do have to say good job to the killer. It took a lot of work. Oh. 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 Miss Dildenshiv, listen. Okay. Let this rhythmic ticking open your mind's ear. Just observe silently. <laughs> oh. Oh. One day, you may open your eyes and see her. This is giving me an impression of the type of person that the killer is, which to me, the very musical person. Yes? Mm-hmm. Very rhythmic. Possibly a strong left hand, beautiful white gown is my guess, and complicated hairstyle. That's all I'm getting right now. Take me away. After you. Hey everybody, it's finally time to release Angie from the vault. In this episode, we invite acclaimed Rolling Stones aficionado Mary Lou Regan onto the program to tell us everything that she knows about her favorite band. She had claimed that Mick wrote that song for her because she was spilling tea about finding Mick and David in bed together, which of course would scandalize people back in the 70s. Originally revisited in 2022 and touched up a little in February 2024, this episode is available now to all. Where do you cast yourself in the song? Because when he says, Angie, you're beautiful, I'm like, okay, thank you. Like, I'm reassured. <laughs> it's not anything I've done. You're like, I know, but it's still always nice to hear. Angie's, don't you weep. If you want to hear this episode, just scroll back to the Little Earthquakes era. Could this be the very first strange little girl? Could this be the very first song written by a man? Performed as a lady. <laughs> Available right now, wherever you're listening to this. After a light lunch, Miss Dildenshiv and I continue to make our way down this treacherous path. But I couldn't help but feel Something had shifted, as if my realm was now laced with trickery, as if there'd been a soul quake, and I was now waking from an aqua tourmaline dream. Quite frankly, I'd heard horror stories of Orlando, namely what I could and could not say, gay, 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 but nothing could have prepared me for this. Twelve murders in one abnormally attractive yet sinfully ill-designed conference center Whoever had committed these crimes had been neither rash nor reckless. Instead, there was a piercing method to their sinister madness. I just needed to release my resistance and piece by piece put the puzzle together. 
Whoever had done this, obviously, and pardon my French, had let crazy take a spin. Miss Dildinchiv became a sort of gruesome tour guide, and she never once let on how insane it was. The more we uncovered, the less we knew. I couldn't help but question if there were other guys, or just the one I used to be. Perhaps the very answer to that question lies itself in the question. Well, frankly, Miss Dildenshiv, I will never doubt you again. You're right, that Waffle House was delicious. And now we are in the conference center gift shop. I've never seen a conference center with a gift shop. What a smart idea. Well, what do we have here? This man uh, seems to have been taken out in front of the jewelry counter here at the gift shop. And he's got a locket of some kind clutched in his hand. Miss Dildenshiv, will you please lean over and pry the locket out of the dead man's cold hands? Yeah, let me get that. I guess we've given up on DNA. I told you once before, I don't follow DNA. Or MDNA. Mm-hmm. Just your wits. Precisely. <laughs> anyway, it's a heart locket. What are the odds? Open it and read inside, as if there's any writing. Small print here. It's not glamorous. It's just business. Oh, I like how one is written on each side of the locket. Yes. As if there were two. As if there were two sides. Oh, my God. As if the killer had two sides. You know, two similar, maybe possibly identical sides. Or fraternal sides. You're always on. Some people have said the connections you make are tenuous. Me? No, I think they're spot on. You know, I said some people will think it's strange. Some people might find my observations little. I observe girls. <laughs> ah, there's a jewelry catalog here on this glass case. All right. Why don't you read from it? Thumb through this here. How about uh, oh, stop a... Stop re there. Read there. Read there. All right. That looks like a clue. This page is dog-eared. <laughs> this page is from Atlantic Records Online, July 2nd, 2001. I've always found it fascinating how men say things and how women hear them. Words can wound and words can heal. And both are included on the album. I've heard a lot of people say, they're only words. What is everybody going on about? But words are powerful. Words are like guns. Your fingerprints cannot be erased from your words or from a crime scene. Well, they probably can. I've never once found a crime scene that had fingerprints. But anyway, keep going. Your fingerprints cannot be erased from your words. You only leave the scene of the crime covered in ink. Hmm. A person has to take responsibility for their words. We as writers cannot separate ourselves from what we create. All of these songs were created by powerful wordsmiths, whether you agree with them or not. The 12 songs are told through the eyes of 13 women. One song features twins, each of whom has her own story to tell. Each woman approached me and said, I have a point of view on this song that you may want to know. That may change how you hear its meaning. I tell you, Miss Dildenshiv, I think that there are two women involved in the murder of this jeweler. Wow. I have a hunch. I like that she said each woman approached me. And that just lends more to what we said earlier, that these women have stories, that these women have names, that she, I would like to see the picture she, I guess you can see the picture in the booklet, but is that really who approached her? Is she like a sketch artist describing to Kevin Aqua and the costumer? Is she describing these girls and then they're bringing them to life? And is that really, do you think that that's how that happened? Good question. I would love to have more insight into that collaborative process. I would imagine it was like in conversation among all of the people who were contributing to this album in various capacities. Just a guess. Yeah. All right. Take me to the next victim.
another stairwell, one I have not seen. Yeah, this is the back stairwell, not to be confused with the front stairwell in which we were earlier investigating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, another victim here? Yes. Why don't you read the paper that I am sure... I don't even have to look. I'm sure it's in his hand. Yep. You are correct. It says here, she found the first body on a stairwell. Oh my god, is the killer watching us? We did find the first body in a stairwell. <laughs> are you the she that she is referring to when she says she? Am I the you that she is they? I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to read this clue engraved onto the lowest step on the staircase. It appears to be from a blog. <laughs> August 6, 2001. Surprised this morning to discover that what looks like more or less random paragraphs extracted from the first couple of stories I'd written for Tori Strange Little Girls have started floating around the net and suddenly got a real insight into how artists must feel having worked themselves into an exhausted frenzy, gone without sleep, and racked up a bill of hundreds of thousands of dollars recording a new album, mixing it, getting it into a form that they are proud of, only to have everyone's first exposure to it be a badly compressed 56k mp3 of a pre-mixed version released to a couple of journalists. If that's how the artist wants it released, fine. But if not, I don't know. It's like a strange sort of race between curiosity and respect. And knowing human nature, curiosity will always win and always be disappointed. Not, I should add, that I spent thousands of dollars or went without sleep to write the SLG stories. But I had always thought that people's first exposure to them would be as a sequence of 12 in the correct order to be read or heard in combination with the photos that they refer to and in context of the songs. Do we blame uh, the company that printed the tour books? I don't know, actually. I do remember them floating around the internet. I do remember that. I don't think they came from the tour book because the tour didn't even start for another month and a half. I don't think the tour book would have been ready. I'm just trying to figure out what other opportunity there would have been since they didn't appear anywhere else, right? Oh, yeah, you're right. I don't know. But I do remember them floating around. And I do remember this blog post as if it were yesterday because I felt scolded. Did you feel scolded? Did you do something wrong that would be deserving of scolding? <laughs> yes, I did. I read the stories. You did? There was like two of them or three of them. It was presented as like, oh, excerpts from the writing. And of course I was curious. And so I read them. And I think they were on the Dent, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe they weren't on the Dent. Maybe oh. they were somewhere else. But maybe the Dent Forum. But anyway. Anyway, someone had them, I read them, and then Neil Gaiman yelled at me. That's all. I get what he's saying, but they were so abstract, and since they weren't included in the booklet, it's not like we had the opportunity to really experience the album with the complete stories and to kind of page through it. That wasn't going to be happening, so it could have been worse, I guess. That's true, and I think this was his first run-in with <laughs> the rabid ferociousness of a Tori Amos fan, you know? Once bitten, twice shy. But what is this? He didn't go without sleep to write these? I want my artists tortured. Yes, honestly. For those of you who weren't around in 2001 or didn't do the tour, I have a tour booklet and I'm going to pull it out as we go through the season because the stories appear in their entirety in the tour booklet and never anywhere else, right? They never were published or anything? I don't think so. And, you know, now's the time. Because if I remember correctly, I think I read somewhere that this year the dates roll back again so that they line up correctly. Like 2024 lines up with the Shut 2001, up. with the 2002 Strange Little Girls calendar. So these are strange days indeed. I forgot there was a calendar. Oh, because the calendar is in the book. The book yeah. is the calendar. Yeah. Oh, my God. It has been almost probably 19 years since I've looked at that. It's at the bottom of my Tory. I have this, like, giant Tory Tupperware bin with all my tour books and stuff. Yep, same. I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to pull it out. 
And maybe at the end of the season, one lucky listener might get it. Well, we better blow through this season then so that they can actually use the calendar while it still lines up with the dates. Yeah, if we don't, they can just wait till next time. Sure, they can wait another 20 years. I have. Uh, Miss Bildenshiv, take me to the next room. Where are we going next? This place is huge. What room is this? This is the armory? (laughs) You'll have to remind me and whoever may be listening, you know, the ghosts in the walls, what an armory is. It is a place where you keep your weapons? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) I think. (laughs) And that can include anything from swords to words and whatever might be in between. That is true. You know, sometimes words, they can be like weapons. That's true. They can also cut like a knife and cut into my life. Ah, look at this man. (laughs) This is so dumb. We just (laughs) don't notice him. Uh, Let's go to, let's do a different room. It's gotta be a different room. All right. What is this room? Conference center has its own discotheque? Yes, I was gonna say, very good. This is a club. You might refer to it as a discotheque, as it seems like you have. That's what we call them in in Europe. Right, right. And they're much more fun. They stay open later. How's the food, though? Oh, the women outside with the 100-year-old schnitzel recipe? Brilliant. (laughs) Schnitzel cart? That's what you want when you come staggering out at 4 a.m. Yeah. Absolutely. It soaks up the alcohol. Oh. Anyhow... Can I please get the member of the janitorial staff to turn off this music? My God, we are investigating a dodeco homicide here. Thank you. Who is this man? And what is this note in his hand? What do we got here? Another clue. The smell of cordite always makes her think of the 4th of July. Oh, this is a good clue. We need to find someone. All we would have to do is get the smell of cordite, the essence of cordite. And just waft it around and see who... You think she'll come running? Maybe, if we want her. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, looky here. There's a bunch of flyers for club parties. And there's some writing on this one. Why don't... (laughs) Why don't you read this from the Amy LeMay Show, BBC London, 14th September 2001. And I will tell you, if there was anything in this era that I would want to have the audio preserved for, it is this Amy LeMay Show. We reference it in an older episode of this podcast on the Sweet Dreams episode. The audio just doesn't survive, but Mm. the transcript is very detailed. So at some point, the audio was around. So if anybody knows where this Amy LeMay Show, I've asked all the major players i've gone back in time i've checked all the bootlegs i've checked the secret bootleg website i asked lisa ridlon that's basically all i've done have you contacted the bbc directly i have actually and they're very guarded with their old material Mm. they don't license it what are they trying to hide exactly anyway the bbc asks or amy lemay asks is it fair to call slg a concept album do you think and tori says Somebody asked me this, and I said to them, I really like you, so don't think I'm being persnickety. But this person rubbed me up the wrong way and said, why don't you just call it a concept record like it is? And I said, do you have a dog? And this person said, yeah. And I said, what kind is it? Well, and then she starts telling me all the kinds it is. I said, so it's a mutt. Why don't you call your dog a mutt? Because that's what it is. 
and then the offense. And I said, well, don't call my record a cover record then. You can if you want, and I'm sure people will. But you know, if you see your dog as a mutt, that's you, isn't it? And then I think your dog knows that. I see this record as, um, it's a special creature to me. They're not my own girls, but they're my foster girls, and I love them. I've developed a relationship with them. Not their song Mothers, who are the men that wrote this. I don't have a relationship with their mothers, nor do I with most of the friends I have. I don't know all my friends' mothers. <laughs> My friends are my friends. I'm loyal to them. So that's why when you ask me, is it a concept record? I think that's such a cliche thing and it makes everybody feel safe. And if you want to call it that, knock yourself out. But it means more to me than that. People need to put things into boxes, don't they, to understand them? Yeah. Is this something that's been brewing for a long time then, these girls? Ever since, I think, I did Smells Like Teen Spirit and there were other men on the Zeppelin cover. Thank you and Rolling Stones' Angie. It was on an EP I did called Crucify in the States and Winter in England. And I think that was sort of a foretelling for me that I would investigate this a little bit more. If you go back to those episodes, we even say, this is Strange Little Girls Light. This is the precursor to Strange Little Girls. You're right, but now it's just going to seem like we were listening to the Amy LeMay show all along. Well, well no one can because the audio has been lost. That's a good point. But I want to talk about something. Please. That I noticed as you were so gloriously embodying Tori Amos. You ready? Yes. Amy LeMay asks, is it fair to call SLG a concept album, do you think? And Tori goes on and says, don't call my record a cover record then. She's not saying it's a cover record. She's saying it's a concept record. I think Tori got confused. I think she's putting concept and cover and interchanging them. Yes. And I would be offended too, because she put a lot of work into this. It's got visuals. The songs are absolutely reworked. You know, in many cases, in many cases and truth, they're completely reworked. So I, I would understand being annoyed if someone just dismissed it as a cover record, but it is very much a concept record. There's a concept that drives, it's like the spine of it, it's the through line of it. It's the stories written by men, told from a woman's point of view, all of them. And it's got all the visuals that make it a, very much a concept record. So I think there's just a slight confusion or interchangeability here that most people don't make that jump with interchanging those two words. What do you think? Yeah, and you see that here. She starts by responding using the term concept and then she switches to cover. So I think you're right about that. It is also inarguably both of those things. It's not inaccurate to call it a covers album. What's the big deal? Because people can dismiss it by just saying a covers record. Because, for example, my least favorite Sinead O'Connor record is her cover record, Am I Not Your Girl. My least favorite Joan Osborne record is her cover record. My least favorite George Michael record is his cover record. They're just, they have a very weird vibe. But that's a place to start the conversation. Like everyone knows what that means and what we're getting at, I would imagine, when you're interviewing Tori in this case is like, true or false? These songs are originally written by you. False. It is a covers album. Okay. And then we'll <laughs> go from there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because in crafting a song, in writing a song, it's not just lyrics, but it's also music. You know, you're telling me that she can't take ownership of writing Raining Blood. That is a completely different different song. Yes, the lyrics are the same. The words are written by the men, but she absolutely authored that music. That's not a melody that exists. That's not, you know, it didn't, it came through her. That's why I think this is a perfect bridge between Venus and Scarlet's Walk. It takes us to the next sort of level. And that's why it's not, I don't know, it pushes her story forward in a way. So 
I think it is dismissive. Do you think Amy LeMay was just staring wide-eyed, not clear on how she'd managed to open such a can of worms by asking Tori if this was a concept album? Yes. And she was like immediately called her boss at the BBC and was like, delete that audio. Right. Ms. Dildenshev, why don't you read from this other flyer from Spin, October 2001. It's easy to reject the notion that artists should be role models, but in a pop world, lousy with soulless scumbags happy to say any damn thing for an icy Rolex, Amos, a self-proclaimed alpha female, commands respect. If she's prepared to argue about artistic responsibility until the cows come home, which, as the sun sets, they literally do, to the dairy farm over the garden wall, she's also willing to shut up and defer to her work. You can just listen to the music. It makes you feel things. It makes you question things. So what about those who don't like the liberties you've taken with one of their favorite songs? Screw them! They've probably got some memory of hearing it that has nothing to do with the song, of making out with some girl at a dorm party who probably doesn't even remember them. I took these songs on spring break and I had my way with them. They aren't going to take me home to meet their mother. I'm not the kind of girl you bring home to meet your mother. (laughs) I think my mom would love to meet Tori Moose. Frankly, what do you think? I think, frankly, Gaylene has earned the right to meet Tori. Yeah, agreed. She probably would have a few words for her, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just want to point out that what Tori is describing here is exactly the kind of relationship she had with Thank You. That's exact. Yes. And Angie. Yeah. And Angie. I was thinking that. <laughs> That's why I think it is a powerful statement. It's been well documented over the years that she doesn't explain the songs because your relationship to the song is your relationship to the song. The song has its own unique relationship with everybody. So she's hyper aware of that fact. So therefore, she knows that people who are upset about her messing with them probably just have a relationship with them. It's not about the song at all. It's about the memory. So screw them. Yeah, I say it. Screw them. I mean, that's airtight. She's basically saying if you don't like what she's done with it, it's because you didn't really understand the song and it's just your bullshit memories and emotional attachment to it. (laughs) Which is perfect. Honestly, that's how I feel about this show. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Say more. (laughs) If you don't like this show, it's probably your relationship with other podcasts that has done you harm. Mm. (laughs) Right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, give us a try. Take us on spring break and have your way with us and then tell us what you think. (sighs) Oh, my God. You know, I would love to go on spring break. I've never been on spring break, really. You haven't? Me either. Did you watch spring break on MTV? I used to. Yeah, I forgot about that show with, uh, what's his name? From Real World? Eric Nice, but I would go on Tory tour for spring break. That's what I would do. Sure. It lasted a lot longer than spring. I'll tell you that. It's true. And most people were not scantily clad. No. Could you imagine us? We were wearing layers. Yeah. Can you imagine if like the pre-show meet and greets looked like the MTV beach house and Tori came out oh and everyone God. was just like pouring <laughs> beer on their bikini yeah, bodies? On their breasts. Yeah. <laughs> Tori, play She's Your Cocaine. Uh. From Music Monthly Baltimore... December 2001, while researching for this record, I didn't apply the cool art moves you'd find in New York or maybe London. It was more scholastically based. My connection to DC taught me about covert activity, how you see all sides, how to gather information, and to know your subject. DC is very intellectual community, but not an artsy community. It can kill an artist being there, but it is really, really good for diagnosing things. While developing strange little girls, Tori says that her time in the capital city region helped firmly plant a working meaning of the word power in her mind. She says, If I did not learn anything else in D.C., I did learn about the game of power and the definition of it. No other interview has really talked about the core of this record, and that is the question of what is power. 
I felt that I had to do this record because I was hearing a hatred from some of the heterosexual male community in the West that I had not picked up on since the days of Gloria Steinem breaking through. Back when the feminist movement was taking root, the seeds were first being planted, and I was a little girl growing up back in Baltimore. Tori elaborates on exactly what allowed her to clearly see this building power struggle. What did it was becoming a mother, and seeing that what turned me on in a man, and did my husband more than anything else. I mean, he's got a great wit and all that, but it was having someone I could leave my daughter with and turn my back on for five minutes. So a man that is a safe place is power. Not necessarily a provider, that's different. I'm an alpha female, I can provide, I bring home the bacon. That's not real. But can a male provide safety? Baby, I don't need your cash. Mama got it all in hand. Mm-hmm. The scary thing I, f- <laughs> the scary thing I found while observing and researching for this work is that some of the women did not see the male as a safe place, and that the aphrodisiac of being dominated came into play. I would walk away sometimes in tears, thinking we as women are also contributing to this definition. So I wanted to create a record that had words that ran the gamut: compassionate, compelling, scary, confrontational, everything. Yes, you know, back in our sweet dreams episode. which came out years ago, yes? Yes. Um, Our political correspondent, Kristen Matthews, mentioned how this album is really about gun control. There's a lot of like gun control. You've got Happiness is a Warm Gun here. You've got I Don't Like Mondays. So I see a lot of this power. The power is rooted like in the fabric of the record. What do you think? I think so too. And as we've been reading through this interview in particular, I really feel like Tori was ahead of her time and that all these themes are kind of even more important and urgent than they seemed in 2001, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, totally. So I'm wondering, what does that mean? Does that mean we should just listen to this album more? Or does that mean she should do a follow up? Maybe both. That's what I mean when I say that this album is just it's dismissive to sit call it just a covers record because yes it is a covers record but like the music doesn't feel the songs are so altered in such a way that it feels very relevant still today mm-hmm. i don't know there is a unifying concept through them all which you don't normally find in covers records i'm still not exactly sure what she means by research when i was researching this record like what does that mean oh come on well you've got to like a listen to the song you've got to like figure out what was going on at the time of the song what the song is about you know you've got to understand that i don't like mondays for example or happiness is a warm gun even for example what is he singing about how was it written where what, what album did it come you know like listening to the things that's research you think that's what she did i wouldn't be surprised if she was like it's not important what the mothers thought because i'm gonna have my own response to this song and reinterpret it as their stepmother or (laughs) whatever term she's using you think she really dove into the origins of each song and like the context in which it was released maybe 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 she means research by like interviewing the man i had this thought earlier interviewing the man who you know she talks about having put all these songs on a list like she was passing this list around and the men in her think tank were like writing down songs that she they thought she should do remember Mm -hmm. so i think maybe she would talk to the men about the song and like what the song meant and you know maybe there's research involved in trying to find the woman in the song but i i'm a hundred percent convinced that neil gaiman wrote down i'm not in love what do you think really you think that was his choice Yes, because he was like, and there's one song on that record that's going to be a Basement Club remix faster than you can say Stains. Uh. Yeah, he seemed particularly attached to it. (laughs) And I've heard her do things with her voice that she's never done before. Although, what I was going to say earlier is that that could be this song also. Because the things she does with her voice on this song, which we'll get to in the episode, but yeah, really good. Real good. A little little biased. Anyway, take me to the next room. Oh, right. It's getting tedious. Glad you wore your walking shoes.
Dildenshiv. You're gonna have to not walk so expressively because you're wearing white. This creepy dungeon room is covered in blood. No, I cannot, and I'd, I'd prefer not to. Well, it's your dry cleaning bill. Oh, I've never seen such a room. There's blood everywhere on oh. the walls. It's like it's raining down. And here's the body. <laughs> yep, there it is, all right. <laughs> covered. Could you fish out that note? Yeah, all right. Let me pry his cold, dead, blood-covered hand open and get this little scrap of paper out here. It says, actually, the Gestapo picked her up. Well. Who got the Gestapo involved? I mean, red herring, maybe. Mmm. The Gestapo did not pick her up. <laughs> Look, Miss Dildenshiv, there is writing in the blood on the wall. And it says, from Spin Magazine, Spin.com, on May 18, 2001, it's a discussion of Tori on Maynard James Keenan. And the interviewer says, you both grew up in fairly intense Christian backgrounds. Do you talk about religion much? We both have a real fascination with comparative religions. It fascinates the two of us, mainly because of the manipulation that's gone on and the power of it. Music also can have that manipulative power, and I think that's where we both sit on the same side of the table. We both believe that whatever you put out there, the phrase, oh, I'm just kidding, oh, I didn't mean that, is fucking weak. That is a limp dick if I've ever heard one. I don't mean it. You guys are overreacting. Man, that's child's play. I just don't have a lot of respect for people that don't stand by their work, whatever it is. Then you're a hypocrite. So neither of you are too into what you'd call post-punk irony? Wait a minute. I don't know what punks you know, but the punks I know are very serious. They had real issues. They thought Buckingham Palace should burn. They weren't kidding. I don't think punk was a joke for a lot of them. It was a revolution. It was about the classes. It was serious. I think, look, if we're going to talk about beating women and then you turn around and say, I'm just kidding, then all I can say is, weak. Where are your fucking balls? If you're going to talk about beating women, you better beat them, or I'm not interested in you at all. I'll kick your ass, because I've got no problem in kicking the ass of people who say that. You're just less than fumes from a fart. Oh, <laughs> Okay, this is Tori. <laughs> she was on fire. She was heated up. In like post-millennium, whatever was happening is a different woman than I've grown accustomed she, to. Well, she was angry. She'd had a daughter. She saw the world around her crumbling, the world crumbling around her. She was angry. Wouldn't you be pissed off? Shouldn't you be? Aren't you pissed off? I am pissed off. It's worse now. It's worse now than it ever was before, especially that quote that you read earlier, or one of us read earlier about how she was seeing this heterosexual rage in a way that she had never seen since Gloria Steinem back in the day. Because I do believe, I mean, there were major problems in the 80s, but I do believe that we were like on a path. We were like taking steps moving forward, especially when Bill Clinton came around. But in the last 10 years, we've been going backwards. It's just as worse than it ever was. This is not my beautiful house. That's how it always <laughs> it's goes, not my beautiful though. wife. I don't know about that. This is the only time it's really gone like that in my lifetime. So I'm not, I'm not saying that dismissively, but whenever we move forward, those people who feel kind of power and influence slipping away from them find a way to start rolling it back. Mm, Paula Abdul said it best. Did she? What did she say? Two steps forward and then two steps back. Of course. But don't worry. There's always the promise of a new day. Oh, that's true. From Red Direct UK, August 31st, 2001, which was the day after she did that stunning show at Union Chapel, the interviewer says, I asked Tori whether she was concerned about the male artist's reactions to her interpretations, and Tori says, I kept my interpretations under my hat. 
under my tube until the 11th hour because I was not seeking approval. I'm not having a relationship with the song mothers, the male writers. I'm having a relationship with their song children. My loyalty was to the integrity of the work, not to the composers. Politically, we're on very different sides of the issue, but there's something about the power of words, and there's no question that all these songs are very powerful. In certain songs of mine, like Professional Widow, other characters are insinuated, and I think it would be very intriguing if somebody did that song from, say, the perspective of The Waitress. Let's do oh. it! Oh, I love it. Is the waitress the same person as the widow? Wait a second. Why did she pivot oh, there? Oh, interesting. Okay, let's take that into our Under the Pink season that we did already in the past. Or like, does professional widow take place in the restaurant? Is like a dish being put in front of her at the beginning and she says, slag pit, <laughs> stag shit. Honey, bring it close to my lips. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I'm interested to know because the waitress, you know, we've been talking a lot lately that the waitress is not a real waitress and that the waitress is like a metaphor in my opinion. And this only lends credo to what I said, that the waitress is a metaphor, like that she wasn't an actual waitress. Yeah. yeah. Even the worst waitress you ever had, except for me, I'm still thinking about the worst waitress I ever had and I get it. But most of the time, even the worst waitress you ever had, you don't think about that long after. You don't think about killing them because your steak wasn't cooked correctly? Yeah, because she was rude or whatever. I don't believe it. So, so I do believe more that the waitress is the same person as the widow. Ooh, that's intriguing. Keep this quote. Keep this quote for later. Yeah? I sure will. I think that makes sense. We're talking about an archetype here, a certain kind of woman. And the waitress is the same type of woman, arguably, as the professional widow. They're both working girls. She's a professional. Agreed. Not the same type of woman, though, I would say. The same woman. I think it's the same woman. Maybe. Read this. We're back at the Amy LeMay show, BBC London, September 14, 2001. Amy says, I want to talk to you about your recent gig that you did. Was the show a platform for your new material from the album? Careful, Amy. And of course, she's talking about the London Union Chapel show. And Tori says, Well, I think it's sort of like um, it being a church. My past has been so based around the church with my dad being a minister and having directed the choir for years and being in the choir and all the hymns and religious stuff, playing weddings and funerals for him because I was cheaper than the organist. So being able to play a church, a working church with your own material, that is a real magical experience to have for somebody like me. That was at Union Chapel, wasn't it? Did you choose the venue specifically? It was in Islington. I asked those who are they to find something really special if we were going to play England. We were doing a little show in England and a media show in Germany. And for the two of them, I said, you know, you have to pick something where the place inspires. So the Germans picked a bunker and the Brits picked a church. Those who are they? I asked those who are they. She had a think tank of non-binary people telling her where to play? Oh yeah, maybe. I asked those who are they. <laughs> Once like again. Something really, these chains, they. She also evades the question again. Which is? Was the show a platform for your new material? Well, let me tell you about my history with the church. Like, okay. okay. Well, that's true. And it serves to note that there was a second promo show. She had done the Union Chapel show, which was astounding. We have a bootleg. We have pictures. I remember living in the moment, like getting information from that show in the moment, which was the first time anything like that had happened, I think, in the Tory sphere that you were getting in the moment updates. Or maybe that it was just because it was so late there, but it was so early here that... I was awake for it, but um, it serves to note that there was also another promo show in Germany, which the Dent mentions. They have an article mentioning that show, but there's no set list or other information about that show, and it was a private show. Yeah, how can that be? I know. I think that's the last great loss. There's like here and there a couple shows that weren't bootlegged because like the internet was bad or because the security was bad or whatever. Do we even know if it was a full length show or was it like a six song showcase or something? We know 
know nothing. We know nothing about wow. it. I don't remember. I don't even remember it happening, frankly. It must have been just a promo show because I would have remembered if she was doing like a full length show. We were so wrapped around that Union Chapel show. Why wouldn't we have been so wrapped around the German show yeah. if it had been full length? You know, well, that's all 12 murders, I guess. Are you sure about that? Let's get the crime solving. Oh, did I miscount somewhere along yeah. the way? I am the greatest detective in the world. <laughs> Try to stay with us. Oh, God. Okay, another murder. Thank you, thank you. Oh, lovely. Not to be confused with the ladies' room. This is the men's room. The ladies' room. The ladies' room. Oh, this is the real men's room. Hmm. I guess you're not safe anywhere. When you drop your pants next to another man, anything can happen, I guess. That's where you feel safest, though, isn't it? Madam Dilden Shiv. Yes. This man died with his trousers around his ankles and a note in his hand. He died doing what he loved. Read it to me, Dildenshiv, please, while I inspect. This says here, all of these things are true. Very nice. I mean, interesting. Especially coming on the heel of 12 murders. Yes. All of these things are true. Does that mean they're all truly dead? They seem to be. They were. That would be a deep fake. Do you think this note is reiterating the truth of all the other notes or confirming the Uh truth of all the other notes? What things do we think are being referred to? That is a good observation. Mm. Frankly, I should be paying you. Let's talk about that. Yes. Well, I see scrawled in lipstick here on the mirror another note. And it's a blog post. It's from a blog post, August 11th, 2001. Why don't you read it for us? Finish the second draft of the whatever it is I'm doing with Avalon. Not quite ready to write the review of Strange Little Girls I thought I'd write, having just got the whole thing. All of 12 tracks are in a final mixed version. Fascinating how the whole shape of the album changes with Happiness is a Warm Gun on there. It's an 11-minute monster I want to hear a lot more times before I say anything sensible, but Raining Blood works much better now, following it. It was never happy following I Don't Like Mondays. Neil is starting to talk like Tori. <laughs> Why don't you read this then? It appears to be from the Orange County Register, November 13th, 2001. That was a lot of lipstick that they had to use, and they did it across all the mirrors in the room. I think it's Shishado Red, maybe? Anyway, these songs, I'm not the mother of them. I'm the host organism. I love the idea that the men are the nurturing force, and I'm the house on heels. I was just someone who had a relationship with the children from these songs of male mothers. Her tactic was to... Crawl into the space structure, approach each sonic being, say, Hi, my name is Tori. I would like to know your secrets, hear your subtext, hear some things you want me to hear. The goal was to penetrate a male party where there weren't invitations given to women, and I found my way in. But instead of writing a work in response, that's not the move to make. You've got to get into the tapestry itself and weave with their threads. I built this pantheon of dream girls that men had created, and the rage that was buried beneath them, and they welcomed me, the ones that were on the record. Yet, 
She adds that to ensure a female identity could be forged out of male songs without trampling on the original's essence, she put together a male research theme for guidance. That's not how I work, but I knew I was in over my head. My husband looked at me at one point and said, I don't think you really know how men think. Do you really know what I listen to after we make love? <laughs> I'm sorry. Keep going. I said, I thought you listened to Boom and Boom, whatever I thought at the time. And he said, no, it's The Clash. The Clash? I walked away saying, ugh, okay. But you see, touchstones for men and women are different. So I needed to sit with these male songs like a spider at the corner. You sit like a spider with a tea dress, like the girl in New Age, her look, this librarian who knows. Okay, now we're getting to the reason why New Age is dressed like that. Starting to make some sense now. First of all, do you think he actually said, do you know what I listen to after we make love? Do you think he used that phrase? Does Mark strike you as the type of person who uses the phrase make love? I do. He's more sensitive than you would think. He smokes to cry. He like, you know. Oh, you're right. No, you're right. Disappears on his motorcycle for hours at a time to just be with his feelings. He probably does. He's like, do you know what I listen to after we make? Don't say it. Blech. Do they just like immediately turn their backs to each other and start listening to something? They like put their discman on <laughs> as soon as the dust settles. <laughs> Did you know what I'm listening to? It's The Clash. Yes. Oh. Okay, from Next Magazine, September 7, 2001. Next says, Doing cover songs is nothing new for you, as many of your singles featured your versions of songs by Nirvana, Joni Mitchell, The Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, to name a few. Can you say something about covering other people's songs? It might have started when I was little performing with my dad to make pocket money. I would do weddings and funerals. I was 10 years old or something. I liked the funerals better than the weddings because I didn't have to play We've Only Just Begun. I started cutting my teeth there, and then I was playing in gay bars when I was 13. You get a very different exposure to music at 13, playing for other people to sing along with in a piano bar, having to follow people in their style and to crawl into the songs. You learn how other people hear songs, which brings us to this record. It was not just what men say and how a woman hears them that really intrigued me, but even more so, it was what men heard other men say. That was a part of the whole record, about men together. I've called the men on this record a laboratory of men and I excavated them. Did you have contact with any of the songwriters while you were recording the album? To be honest with you, to take on a project like this, you can't. You have to choose. Like, are you having a relationship with the daughters or the mothers? I had to stay true to my relationship with the daughters. My own songs are my song girls. I'm their mother. Some of them, I don't know where they are in the world now. Sometimes you just go, where's Leather tonight? I have no idea what havoc she's creating. I know she's meeting people and she's making friends and I'm not going to know them all. This is a great opportunity to ask you, now that you've done an album entirely comprised of cover tunes, how do you feel about having people cover your songs? The greatest compliment that you can have as a songwriter, even if somebody holds your feet to the fire, or if they take a different position in the song or expose your hand on it, somebody might cover one of my songs that shows a side where you might look at my character and see that my character isn't likable in this one, and theirs is. I welcome anyone who could find something in my work. It means that you're a part of something that's bigger than you. It's truly an honor to have somebody think enough of your work to make it their own as well, even if they don't think a lot of you. With some of these artists, songwriters on Strange Little Girls, I might not have a whole lot to say to some of them. Some of them feel like they need to have power over another person, or they think women or gays need to be subjugated. Whoever they are, people are entitled to their beliefs, but it doesn't mean that you have to have a lot to exchange with each other. I did pick powerful wordsmiths. I did set out to prove that words are like guns. I set out to prove that words can wound and words can heal. I had heard a few men out there say, What's everybody going on about? They're only words. As a songwriter, you have to stand by your work. So I went to the men's words themselves to prove to them how powerful their words are. Mm -mm -mm. 
I would love to know what these conversations were in terms of her think tank of men and the songs that they chose. Give me an example. Well, I'm like, enjoy the silence. That seems a little bit like an odd man slash woman out <laughs> on this record. And I'm not sure, especially before we have the opportunity to talk about it, how that sort of fits in thematically and who the female character is and how they tease that out. So I would just love to know what these conversations were in terms of how the songs were chosen and then kind of how she found her accent. Point. Yes, I agree with you. I'd love to figure out that stuff too, particularly what gave her the impetus to like jump into the song. You know, she needs that access point, like you said. I guess you'll have to add it to the list of questions. What a criminal investigation we have before us, Ms. Dildenshiv. Mm-hmm. I do thank you for taking me through this conference hall. I think that we can cancel the Men in Music Business Conference for the foreseeable future, but we will solve these crimes. We will find these 12 women. Something in me says there's 13, but we'll find these 12 women, get to the heart of who they are, interrogate them if we can, hear their own words from their own mouths, do their birth charts. We'll do everything we can. All right. I guess it's worth pointing out, first and foremost, that you're assuming the murderers are all women. Is that correct? Oh, of course. This crime took a level of skill and planning that, in my experience, the heterosexual male simply does not possess. Therefore, I can safely conclude that all 12 of these murders were committed by women and or non-binary folk. And furthermore, I'm willing to bet, just based on my hunch, because remember, I am the greatest detective in the world. Based on my hunch, I'm willing to bet they all have similar facial features. (laughs) Well, you're lucky you have me with you to bring a female perspective to this investigation. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Dildenship. This has been quite a pleasure. Has it? Walking over corpses? It's a, it's important to love your work, so... Honestly, this is the best time I've ever had investigating a duodecal homicide. Wow. That's 12 homicides in one location. Does that count as a, a mass murder? No, a mass murder is when you get murdered in a church. But we will get to the heart of it. I assure you that, Miss Dildenchiv. I have no doubt. That's why I called you. But first, this has made me very hungry. Should we go get something to eat? Absolutely. Waffle House, what do you think? Sure. I love a Waffle House. We have a beautiful location at the Orlando International Airport. Sounds good to me. (laughs) I've worked up quite an appetite reading all of these strangely placed clues and articles. I've never seen a duodectal homicide with so many words. I want it covered, smothered, and capped, please. Makes sense. You and me, baby. Nothing but mammals. I, I of course, can process dairy. And goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can broadcast somehow to the public for information. Keeping them abreast. Keeping them abreast. Abreast of the development in this case. Yes. Frankly, Miss Dildenshiv, I'm just glad you finally took off that voice-changing scream mask. Let's go.
please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of our show, which was produced by Efren Jr. for the Sideways Society. The program is hosted by myself and David Nadine Anderson. Our researcher and the only woman clear from the suspect list is Shay Stymack. Our sound engineer and goodest boy editor is Oliver the Soundman. Our marketing consultant is Maggie Stillman. Our webmaster is Amanda Hawkins. Our Neil Gaiman correspondent is Lauren Eshwi. Our resident witch is Amy Kay. Our political correspondent is Chrissy Matthews. Our resident mental health expert is Dr. Paul Roy Taylor. Today's episode art was created by Jack Foster. You can check out a full playlist of music from today's program at our newly redesigned website, songsoftoramus.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter or follow our other shows, Tour All Night and Never Shut Up, hosted by our resident Yogini Rose Cress. Leave us a voicemail, 323-296-9955, or send us an email, songsoftoramus at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamus.com.